How's everybody doing today? All right. Happy Independence Day. Uh, it's a great uh, weekend to celebrate our independence as a, as a nation. Um, by the way, if your kids need an activity packet, we have those in the front row. So come on up, kids, if you need one, grab one. Uh, there's all different kinds. So I saw at least Nemo and Dinosaurs. That's what my two kids picked. So they were very excited about the dinosaurs. While they're grabbing those, um, help me out here. So finish the quote for me. With great power comes great... Where's that from? Spider-Man. So... (laughs) It's a good quote. It doesn't matter where it comes from. With great power comes great responsibility. So that's true. We know that that's true in terms of our kind of national identity, right? We have great power, great freedom as, as a nation. But the question is, what do we do with that freedom, right? Do we use it for ourselves or do we use it for others? And the question that James is going to ask this morning, because we've been going through the book of James, and we're going to continue to do that today. We're going to be on page 849. Uh, of James, James 5, we're going to go through verses 1 to 6. He's going to ask that very same question, with the great responsibility of riches comes, or with the power of riches comes great responsibility to use those riches, our possessions, our materials, for not just for ourselves, but for what God wants us to use them for, which is for others and for His kingdom. So with that great power, and the more power that we have, the more responsibility that we have to use those gifts in accordance with what He uh, has, has saved us to do. And so we're, we're going to be looking at this. Now, I want to give a bit of a warning before we look at the passage. Um, how many of you like to go to the doctors and get shots? I have two people <laughs> who are just into pain. The rest of us, not so much, right? Um, Regardless, though, even though they hurt, why do we get them? Yeah, they're good for us, right? They either make us better or they keep us from getting worse. And so in the same way, I'm giving you a warning. What James is going to say is going to hurt. This is not an easy, light passage. I mean, we just happen to have the kids up here today. Uh, most of this will fly right over their head, but it's just the way things kind of matched up today. It's going to sting a little bit like a vaccination, but we need to hear it, especially in this country, okay? So James 5, verses 1 to 6. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moss have eaten your clothes Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one 
who is not opposing you. This is the word of the Lord. (laughs) Um, Ouch, right? That's our passage. It's intense. Um, Throughout his letter, though, you need to understand that James, what he's been doing, has, has been confronting a lot of the discrimination that he's seen within the church in his day. He's confronting the discrimination against the poor, and he's, dis- he's confronting the partiality that the, the believers had towards those who are more wealthy. And so today, James is addressing those who are at the upper end of the socioeconomic status level within the community. Next week, he's going to address the poor. And one of the things I want you to notice as we do this is that he's addressing both groups of people as they read and listen to the letter together. And that's important. So it's, it works a little bit like marriage counseling, right? Because if you think of marriage counseling, two parties come in to get counseling. Both parties think the other one's to blame, for the problems that are happening in the marriage. And what happens in marriage counseling is that the counselor draws out and begins to talk with both people in who can hear what he or she has to say to the other party. And they're learning both the ways that they're, they're both bringing their own brokenness to the situation, but they're also hearing the solution for both parts. So that when they come out of that meeting together, the series of meetings, they, they have a way forward together. One understands the position of the other one better and, and, and is able to help the other one live out the, the recommendations, the strategies that they work through with the counselor. And, and it gives accountability, right? Because then you can't have one person go, well, the counselor didn't say that. No, no, I was there. I remember when they said this to you. Remember, we were sitting on the same couch, right? So there, there's there's inclusive knowledge there of what's being said to both people. And and the heart of what James wants to address is that he understands that for those that are at the upper end of the socioeconomic class of the the believers in the church, they have tremendous good that, that they can use their resources to produce in the world. That God has given them incredible power, and with that incredible power comes incredible responsibility. But here's the issue, because instead of valuing the people that are around them and using their resources for good, they're loving their money and their material possessions more than people. The other reason that he is rebuking the rich in front of the poor is because, gosh, it's so easy for us to covet what other people have, isn't it? I mean, particularly if you don't have uh, what you perceive to be as enough or as much as the person next to you, whether it be your neighbor or your coworker or your friend or whoever, family member, whoever it might be. It's so easy for us to look at them and go, man, life would be so much easier if I had what they have. And James is going, stop it. Because with great power comes great responsibility. You have no idea the additional burdens that God is putting on the people who have more. Don't, don't envy what they have. Be responsible with what he's given you. And so he addresses them together. Now you might be listening to this passage and hearing that it's addressed to the rich and you're like, whoo, man, I am so glad that I don't fall into that category. I mean, 
if we were talking to a different group of people, maybe this would be applicable, but it's, uh, it's just us, right? So, man, we are off the hook. Let's go get those rich folks with pitchforks and fire, you know? Um, I, I, I hate to take away your comfort, but the reason that we often feel that way is because who do we compare ourselves to? We don't compare ourselves across the board with humanity. We, we often compare ourselves with those who are just a little bit above us economically, socially, wherever we perceive to be the next rung on the ladder and we compare ourselves to them and we go, yeah, this applies to them, but it doesn't apply to me. Well, in order to help level the playing field, I'd like you to see that instead of comparing ourselves with our maybe slightly more affluent neighbors, let's just compare ourselves to the rest of the world and see where we stand. Okay? So if you made $1,500 last year, $1,500, $1,500, you are in the top 20% of the world's income earners. If you had enough food to put on the table, enough decent clothes to live in a house or an apartment and have a reasonably reliable means of transportation, you are likely in the top 15% of the world's income earners. In other words, if you got to choose what shoes and shirt you wore today, and they weren't like your cousins, cousins, parents, grandparents' shoes. You're one of the wealthiest people in the world. If you made $25,000 or more, you were in the top 10% of the world's income earners. And if you made $50,000 or more, you were in the top 1% of all the wealth earners in the world. Of the 7 billion people, you are the top 1%. Now, I know we can compare our expenses to those around the world, but even if you eliminate some of the competition, it doesn't do much for us. We are far wealthier than we know. And so what does James have to say to us? Verse 1, Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the the misery that is coming on you. Ouch. That is covenant curse language. That is Old Testament prophetic judgment about the... Now, here's the thing I want you to understand. Is, Is James condemning rich people for being rich? No. He doesn't condemn rich people for being rich. He condemns rich people for the way that they use their riches. And we've already established the fact that we are those people. We are in that group. And so we need to understand the way that we use our resources, our material possessions, is a matter of blessing and cursing. And the way that we use those things shows in great detail what we think God is like, which is why it's such a huge deal to James. And now here, and this is the central issue that he's trying to get at. The rich are using their resources in a way that's materialistic. They've fallen into materialism. Now I was thinking a lot about that this week, and here's, I think, a decent definition of materialism. It is any moment when we place a higher value and love on material things as opposed to human beings. It is when we... We love our material possessions more than we love people. 
It's when we value the accumulation of wealth over and above our fellow men, brothers and sisters, men and women. See, materialism happens when our possessions become so important that it ends up impacting our relationships with our family, with our friends, with our co-workers, and with the poor. And James says, if that's happening, family, we are in serious trouble. This is a matter of life and death. This is a problem. It's so deep, in fact, that we should be shedding tears over it. Weep and wail. This is not comforting language. Now, now, here's the question. How do you know then if you're falling into materialism? How do you know if this is an issue for you or for me? And James gives us three areas that we need to pay attention to that are expressions of materialism if it's happening in our hearts, if it's happening in our lives. And so these are the three that we're going to go over. One, wasteful hoarding. Wasteful hoarding. Two, economic oppression. And three, luxurious self-indulgence. Wasteful hoarding, economic oppression, luxurious self-indulgence. And we need to ask, please just allow this to wash over you, if you will, this morning. Just ask yourself, are any of these things true of you as we go through this this morning? All right, let's jump in. Wasteful hoarding, number one. He says in verse two and three, your wealth is rotted and your and moss have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Now, that word hoarded is an intentional use. He's not saying you've saved wealth. It's not a neutral term. To hoard is not to save. There's a huge difference between those things. To save means to have enough resources to provide for your basic necessities. To, to plan for the future. To, to, to save in such a way that you're actually able to be generous in the future. To hoard, however, means to store up for yourself far more than you need to live on as a basic necessity of life. To accumulate and accumulate and accumulate far more than you could ever possibly need. Now, now I want to ask you this question. Why? What are some of the reasons that we might fall into a pattern of accumulation for ourselves? What are some of the things that we often do? Yeah, fear, right? That's a huge one. How many of you have, have um, parents or grandparents that grew up in the Great Depression or great-grandparents? What is their life like today, if they're still around? They save everything, right? It's as if the Great Depression never... as if we never got out of it, right? And they, they live in a, in a... Most of them tend to live in a pattern because of what they were exposed to and not having enough food to put on the table each and every night, that, that now every jar becomes not just a container of food, but a container of screws <laughs> and nuts and washers and, and string and everything else that you, you can accumulate. And, and to the point where sometimes there can be like cathedrals of stuff. Why? Because it's driven by fear. Fear that we won't have enough. Fear that God won't be faithful. Fear that He's not a generous giver. Fear that He won't be a good dad. Are you afraid? 
Do you have a, a spirit of impoverishment where you just go, I can't trust that I'll ever have enough, and so I gotta make more, and I gotta make more, and I gotta work harder, and I gotta work weekends, and I gotta work nights. Now sometimes we have to do that out of necessity, and I'm not blaming those things. Sometimes those are needed activities to, to, to help provide for our families. But when your family has enough and you keep doing those patterns, the question I would ask you is, are you doing it out of fear? And a distrust in God. What else? What some of the other reasons that we might hoard. So we can boast. Yeah, why boasting? Yeah. Jesus tells a great parable about boast, about hoarding to boast, about a rich man who had accumulated so much grain And instead of giving away the grain that he had accumulated to other people that needed to eat, he said, you know what I'll do? I'll build what? Bigger barns. Why? So that he could look around at all that he had amassed and go, yep, I'm a good person. I did my job. I accumulated wealth. I'm doing all right for myself. And the problem is that God said, I'm going to require your very life from you. And who will get it now? In other words, if you weren't willing to open your hand to other people, I will open it for you so that the poor can have something to eat. The question I think we have to ask ourselves is, do you feel more significant with the more that you accumulate? Do you find yourself often comparing yourselves to others and if you're doing just a little bit better than your neighbors or your family members, you feel a little bit better about yourself because your identity is in your stuff? I just want to remind you, if that's where you're living, then you've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. The the truth of God is that you are secure in Him, that He has given you, because of the work of His Son, the riches of heaven. They're all yours in Christ. And so you are worth more than your stuff could ever produce for you. Even if you look around the landscape of your life and you go, I have nothing to show for it. God looks at you. He doesn't look at your stuff. He looks at the image-bearing nature that He put into you when He created you. He looks at His the, the Spirit that He put in you when you came to faith in Jesus Christ so that Jesus' work is now true of you. And He goes, that's my son. That's my daughter. I will give him the riches of heaven. You need no more. But oftentimes our hope, our security, our our affection is in what belongs to us rather than in whom we belong. Is that true? It could be lust. Lust could be a reason that we hoard. I say, how does that work? Well, if we have a hunger to accumulate in order to meet this void in our soul, then it's driven by lust. If we find ourselves needing to shop more because if I just have one more thing, then I'll feel great about myself. If I just put one more pair of shoes in the closet, then I'll be complete. If I have just one more item, just one more electronic, just one more video game, then I'll complete my collection. See, to lust is to look to another source to meet our deep needs in a way that only God can. And we can use shopping, we can use video games, we can use alcohol, we can use overeating, we can use collecting to do it. We're very creative. 
<laughs> in our idolatry. But it's all the same. Jesus says this in Matthew 6, verse 19 and 20. He says, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. All of that is, is so temporary. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. In other words, the more that you learn to find your love in the secure things, in the permanent things, in the things of God and what He has done for you, in your permanent identity in Him, when He becomes your treasure because you are His treasure, you end up treasuring Him over the things of this world. And you treasure what He does in you and you treasure what He does through you. And then you start to see how really secure you truly are. And when that happens, you want to invest more and more and more in Him and not in stuff. Where is your treasure these days? See, you might ask, how can I know what, if my treasure is in earthly things? Well, it's, if your treasure is in something earthly, then it's usually the thing that you have to have. It's the thing that you think that if you got more of it, you would be satisfied. It's the thing that you're most afraid of losing. It's the thing that keeps you up at night because you have it and you're afraid of losing it or you don't have it and you really want it. What is it? See, James understands that whatever that is, if it's an issue, it's a big deal. And that's why, I don't know if you noticed this or not, we've been doing this for 11 weeks. This is the most severe passage in the letter. Of all the things that James could have put his finger on to say, look, this is the worst of the worst. Could have been anything under the sun. And he picks this, the way that we use our resources. And I think the reason that he does that is because he he understands something about our possessions that we often forget, which is that the love of money will rot our souls if we allow our money to rot. The love of money will rot our souls if we allow our money to rot. Now, I see some confused looks. And here's the question you're probably thinking. How in the world does our money rot? Like, because our money's on like a computer chip, like in, you know, Nebraska, wherever the servers are for your particular bank. It's accumulating interest. It's, it's, in, it's in a home. It's in real estate. It's, it's whatever. It's in my retirement account. It's, it's doing something. It's not rotting. It's not like there's paper disintegrating somewhere. Oh, 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 wait, wait, wait. One of the things that the Bible teaches about money is like everything else, it has a shelf life. Your money has a shelf life. And how do you know that something has gone past its shelf life? It begins to stink. How do you let something expire past its shelf life? You don't use it. If you don't use it, it expires. That's the way food works. It doesn't matter what kind of can you put it in. Even the the most resilient of food. Okay, maybe not honey. I hear honey is like forever. Okay, barring that one example, track with me, everything expires. Everything goes bad. 
And that same principle is true of your money according to Scripture. And what that means is that if you don't use it, it rots. You don't use it, you lose it. Now how do you use it? You use it to do good. That's how it's being used. That's how it keeps from getting expired. You use it to do good, to feed the hungry, to care for needs, to, to shelter people. In other words, if you're not putting your money into people, if you're not making a difference with it in the lives of others, then your money is rotting. And when your money is rotting, it rots you. That's why James says in verse 2 and 3, your wealth is rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. That's the rotting of the stuff. But then he goes on to say, their corrosion will testify against you and eat what? Your flesh. It doesn't just stay at arm's length. The infection doesn't just impact your money. It, it goes from the money into you. It's highly contagious, in other words. The more that you hoard things for yourself, the more that you allow them to rot, the more that corrosion goes into you. And one of the, I don't know if you, have you, how many of you have ever watched someone get an infection on their skin, particularly someone who's older in life? What's the first thing that happens? How do you know that they have an infection? Maybe it's in an area where you can't see it. <laughs> That's John's answer to everything. It, sm- <laughs> it smells. They get a fever and they start to get confused. I never knew that before until recently. The, it, it, to the point where it's like when someone older starts to get confused, the very first thing you start to think of is maybe they have an infection because they become confused. Now, in the same way, James is saying that the love of money, hoarding what you have, is so serious that the infection causes you to become confused. Here's a few ways. You start to confuse greed for generosity. You start to confuse wants for needs. You start to confuse luxuries for necessities. And I think, family, as a nation, we are incredibly infected. We are so confused that down is up and up is down according to God's kingdom. Because a life that's only focused on what you need is a life of incredible infection. And here's what happens when you're infected. It's a life of loneliness and discouragement and disappointment. It's not the life that God saved us to live. James says, watch out. You're in serious danger. The infection is making its way to your heart. Because the truth is you were not made for yourself. You were made for him and you were made for others. And so to use your things in a way that for yourself is not in accordance with what he wants for you, which is life. He wants you and I to live as a blessing to others. One of the lessons that we've been trying to teach our kids a lot recently is that our default mode is to use people to love things. We all want to use people to love our things, but we are meant to use our things to love people. But the threat is always there. Because how often is it that we see people as a threat to our stuff? Someone comes into our home and we see them as a threat to dirty it up 
or disorganize things or break something. We see people as a threat to our vehicles, as potential accidents waiting to happen. We see people as a threat to our money because we think that they want something out of us. See, if we don't use our things to love people, then we will use people to love things. And oftentimes what happens is that we love our stuff more than we love the people around us. I remember when I was struck with this, um, when it came to our home for a long time, when I was in seminary particularly, I was in school and I would kind of go out and be in class or go out and do ministry or go out and be involved in the church and then I would come home and home was like a safe refuge. It was like a space where I could kind of be myself and let my guard down and just ah exist and, and I didn't feel the need to have anyone in my home. I, it was a, a castle un, unto myself because I felt like, hey, I was already doing a lot out in the world. I need a place to rest. I need a place to find refuge. I need a place to recharge. And I remember so um, vividly when Jesus took that comfort away. When he introduced us to some of our neighbors and they began to come into the space where I thought was my refuge and begin to dirty it up. And at first I thought, you can't do this. This is my refuge. And then somewhere along the way, Jesus through his spirit shouted into my ears, I am your refuge. I am your place of rest. I am your source of strength. Therefore, if I am those things to you, you can use every possession, including the home, which was unto yourself for other people. I gave it to you for them, not just for you. And and that message has so radically shaped the last five years of our life. So our, our homes are to be places of laughter and rest, but not just for us for those that are far from God, for those that are part of his family. And if, if we don't use our things to bless others, then we are going to rot along with our things. That's the truth that James is saying. So what are you storing up? What are you holding on to that's holding on to you? What's making you a slave these days? Second, economic oppression. He says, look, the wages you failed to pay, the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. James goes from asking the question, what do you have, to the question of how did you get what you have? And, uh, and he's writing to a particular group of people who are wealthy landowners who hired out laborers each day. And what they were doing was, instead of paying the people that were working in their fields at the end of the day like they should, they were withholding the wages. And what was happening is those poor people who needed the money to go to the market to pick up food so that they could feed their family that evening were not getting paid. And so they would come home empty-handed and they would have nothing to feed their families. It's not like they could go to a store and just pack their refrigerator full of frozen meat. They had to get it that day. And if they didn't get it that day, they would starve that day. And so these people were holding it back because I think there was something where they were saying, I, I can make my money work harder for me if I withhold it for a time. 
and I'll be reluctant to pay the people. Now you go, aha, there's my loophole. I'm not a landowner. I don't have vineyards and fields that people work in. Okay, maybe not. But are you a boss? Are you an employer of some kind? Do you ever hire work to be done in your home, on your car, on your lawn? Do you ever go out to eat and have someone serve you at a restaurant? If you fall into any of those categories, raise your hand. (laughs) The question that we have to consider is, do we pay in a timely, generous manner that looks to bless the one who's blessed us with their work? Or do we try to figure out a way to get the most out of them that we possibly can? Uh, Jen and I were talking about this yesterday when it came to haggling in Haiti. One of the things that we've seen with a lot of teams, and this isn't anybody's particular fault, but it's, it's the way that we move into a developing nation as Americans. We think to ourselves, well, I've got to haggle about everything. So if I'm going to buy a necklace, I'm going to get that necklace at the darn cheapest price I can possibly get it. And so we, we've, we've barter, we haggle, and we, we like, well, if you, what if you take soap, you know, or shampoo, or can I get you down a little bit more? And we try to get the most amount of stuff for the littlest amount, not realizing that that same individual has to go home and feed their family on what you gave them that day. Is that our mindset when it comes to the people that surround us? We're trying to wring out from them everything that we can and be reluctant to be a blessing to them. See, the truth is, if we're valuing money over people, we will inevitably use people to gain. We'll use them to get comfort. And James doesn't mince words here, family. He says, their cries have reached my ears. Now, before we go on, I just... There's good news in this too because if you've ever been oppressed, if you've ever been defrauded, if you've ever had someone take advantage of you, and many, many of us have, those cries to God have not gone unheard. Oftentimes we think when we're, you know, when something happens to us that's unjust, we go, is, is anybody listening? Is it, does anybody care? Is anyone going to do something about this? And when James says that the cries have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty, he's saying God is a warrior who is going to do battle with that injustice one day. And so if you've ever been on the other end of it, there's good news for you. But if you've been on the oppressing end of it, watch out. Now for a lot of us, we find ourselves somewhere in the middle And when we're in the middle, we need to understand that because God hears those cries, He wants His church to join Him in doing something about it. In other words, to to know the good that we should do and not to do it is sin. Does that sound familiar? That's James as well. If we... If, if we're exposed to, to injustice and oppression happening and we don't act, if we don't get on the side of God on it, then we are on the wrong side in addition to those who are oppressing. So we have to ask ourselves some things. Ask yourself, is there anyone that you owe right now? Is there anyone that has done a service for you that you have not paid yet? How about this one? Do you know where your clothes were made? 
say, what? Do you know where your shoes were made? Do you know where your purse was made? Why do I ask that? Because most of the stuff that we get in our lives are made by people who are in slavery, who don't make a decent day's wage. They're being oppressed. And those the cries of those people are literally coming up to heaven and we do nothing about it. Uh, you might think I'm going too far, but there's a great um, website called Slavery Footprint. How many of you have ever heard of uh, Carbon Footprint? That you and I have a carbon footprint. What's a carbon footprint? It's the amount of... Yeah, it's the amount of carbon that it takes to run your life, right? So it's the amount of greenhouse gases that are going up into our atmosphere that are contributing to the, the change in the climate and all that because of the lifestyle that you live. That's your carbon footprint. What do you think your slavery footprint is? It's the amount of slavery that it takes to run your life. And I think if... Go home and Google that later. Please don't do it now. <laughs> do it later, you will be utterly shocked and appalled how much slavery it takes to make your life go. Do we care, family? Do we care where our stuff comes from? Do we, because we should. We should care seriously about the 12-year-old girl who works 20 hours a day in a sweatshop in Asia. We should care about her because her cries go up to the Lord Almighty. It should grip our hearts, family. We shouldn't want to just get the, the, the most amount of stuff for the cheapest cost. And yet, so often, that's the way I live. I was so convicted this week. Do I even understand where my stuff comes from? Do I care? How about this? When you go out to eat, how much do you tip? I think, well, you know, standard discretion says between 10 and 15 amount. I'm not talking about standard discretion. I'm talking about gospel giving. Did God give you the standard amount or did he go above and beyond when he sent his son? Do we take that into account? Or do we ask, how much should I tip rather than how much can I? Third, luxurious self-indulgence. Verse 5, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. Now, most of us think James is going too far because, you know, I mean, he's really coming down here. Like, is it bad to enjoy good things? Is that what he's saying? Like, should we just walk around in sackcloth and ashes all the days of our lives? Like... Just wearing, you know, the same shirt for 20 years? Is that what he's calling us to? No. But he is saying that we need to exercise restraint in the way that we live. That we shouldn't just buy whatever we want just because we want it and just because we can afford it or just because we have the credit to go into debt for it. See, James is saying there is a line somewhere between what you need and what you think you need. Now, what's the question that everybody wants to know as soon as I say that there's a line? Where's the line, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, how much is too much? Uh, how many cars are too many? 
How, how big of a house is too big? How many vacations are too many? How many shoes? Like, what are we talking about? Is it like, what's the over-under on all of this stuff? Um, see, because in America, we're taught that the pursuit of anything that makes you happy is a good thing. And James says, no. No. It doesn't work that way. There's a line between self-indulgence and sacrificial giving. Now, now here's the thing. In, in terms of where that line is, the answer is that it's completely unique to you. I actually can't tell you what your line is, and, and you can't tell me what mine is. But, but I do know this, that you and I should be asking of absolutely every area of our life, is this a necessity or a luxury? Do I need this or do I want it? Should I have this or can I give? Will, will the purchase of this thing hinder me from being generous in some way? Should I be spending my money on this, which represents spending it on me, or should I be giving it away to others? Now here's the thing. If that question never even registers in our brains when we make a purchase, James says we are off the rails. We are out of even the realm of, of what God would call us to if that question never even pops into our minds. Because this is the life that every follower of Jesus is called to. To establish some kind of balance between what we think we need and what we actually need. Now, as soon as I say the word balance, you think, aha, balance. I like the word balance. Balanced things seem balanced. Like, I can go for balance. You may feel out of balance, but I think we're all out of balance. Um, John Wesley, who is a very famous uh, pastor, preacher, and leader, established the Methodist uh, denomination of the church, started out incredibly poor, and yet because of his fame towards the end of his life, he became very wealthy. And he's very famous for the way that he found balance in his life. And this was balance for him. The f- one year in his ministry, he made 30 pounds. He was British. Made 30 pounds, and he gave away three. And we think, aha, that sounds balanced. That's tithing. I've heard of tithing. 10%. Okay. That's balanced. I'm trying to work towards balance. I'm not there yet, but now let's keep going. The next year, he made 40, and he gave away 10. Wait, this is getting unbalanced. The next year he made 70 and he gave away 40. By the end of his life, one year he made 1,400 pounds and he gave away all of it except for 40 to live on. That's balance. See, he understood that every follower of Jesus needs to ask themselves, is my standard of living going up as fast as my income? And if the answer is yes, then I need to check my heart. It must not. Because the more money that you make, the more of a gap that there should be between the lifestyle you do live and the lifestyle that you're capable of living. C.S. Lewis put it this way in Mere Christianity. He said, I do not believe that one can settle how much we ought to give. Phew, that's a relief, right? No one's going to tell us the number. But I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. 
In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. I think about that in our neighborhood when half the people on our street have homes at the shore. and There's nothing wrong with homes on the shore, and the people on my street are incredibly generous, and they allow us to use those homes. I'm really grateful. But sometimes in my heart I go, man, I'd like to have one of those, like everybody else on my street, until I realize that if I did that, the gap would be gone. I could not be generous to my church family, and I could not be generous to the poor, and I could not be generous to those that are in need. That's the line for me. If it's going up as fast as our income, we're probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our giving excludes them. Another way to say that is that we should give to the point at which it hurts. Are we giving to that point? Are we being generous to that degree where we have to say no to something else in order to say yes to generosity? Because if you never have to say no to something to be generous, then it's not really generosity yet. We've been teaching this to our, our kids recently, and as um, especially our oldest has started to make a little bit of money around the house as he started to do a few things. And um, we're trying to teach them, like, when he gets a dollar or $3 or whatever it is, like some of that goes towards saving or giving first, saving and spending. And he started to do the math one day because there's a particular item that he has in his, um, in his uh, mirror, in his, ahead of him that he wants to to get. And um, he visits it on Amazon very frequently. (laughs) But he started to do the math in his head and he goes, wait a minute, daddy, if I give first out of everything that I get, then it'll take a lot longer to get what I want. I said, yep, that's right. <laughs> now he has to understand that the reason that we do that is so that because God first gives to us so that we can be generous with others. And we want to make sure that we're caring for the needs of other people above our, our own, not just to get what we want, but to use the things that he's given us for the good of others. Family, it's a good thing to feel the weight of generosity. When you have to make decisions on the way that you live because you're choosing to be generous, that's what James would call us to. Is that happening for you yet? Now you have to understand, we're not saying that God will bless you and accept you if you do this. What we're saying is that since God has accepted you and loved you and approved you and been generous to you and poured himself out to you, you get to do this for others. But everywhere that we choose not to do it, everywhere we shrink back, everywhere we hoard, everywhere we oppress, everywhere we choose luxury over generosity, there we will find the shrinking of our hearts so that we don't experience God's presence the way that we truly need to and want to. You want to live and knowing and experiencing his love? And we prayed it earlier. 
Do you want to know that he's in the room? Do you want him to, to fill your heart with generosity? Do you want to see him move through your life? You can't do that without being generous because he's a generous God. And if we're his kids, we will look like our dad. So what do we do? Where do we begin? We have to begin by repenting and remembering. Repenting and remembering. Verse 1 says, Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming on you. That's the language of repentance. That's the language of getting our hearts straight with God. It's, it's, a, it's a, a, the language of remembering that our finances aren't just a personal matter between us and us. They're a personal matter between us and our Creator. And I want you to realize that, that it's the language not just of condemnation, but it's the language of freedom to get you out of the thing that's causing you to be in slavery. Because if you remember in the last chapter, in, verse, uh, in chapter 4, verse 9 and 10, he said, same thing, be wretched and mourn and weep. Same language. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Why? Because if you humble yourself before the Lord, He'll exalt you. If you get low, He'll bring you high. If, if you're honest with the fact that your heart is broken, He'll repair it. That's what He specializes in doing when we come to Him. When we say, I've hoarded, or I've oppressed, or I've indulged, and I haven't just done it against me or against them, I've done it against you, and we confess that to Him, there's good news because God exalts those who humble themselves. Verse 6 in chapter 4 said, but he gives more grace. Therefore, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. See, because he gives more grace to you when you confess the ways that you haven't used your resources well, then at that moment that you confess that, he, he pours his grace out on your heart. He says, yes, I've longed to forgive you of this. I've longed for you to come to me. You're not too far gone. You haven't sinned big enough that my grace cannot cover it. And so because of that, we can submit ourselves to him over and over and over again, knowing that when we run to him in our time of need, he's not going to condemn us for what we've done. He's going to accept us and welcome us home because of his son. So begin with repentance, but don't stop there. You've got to continue on to remember. The, the last verse is a very weird one. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it but that. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Now, the Greek in that literally says the righteous one who did not oppose you. And there's a lot of different ways to take that. Uh, some commentators will say that... that um, there are poor people that were being oppressed and James is saying that you've literally murdered them because you've taken advantage of them. Um, but that's not actually what it says. It, it doesn't say the righteous ones. It says the righteous one. It's talking about an individual person. Um, and, and if it were talking about a poor man, it would say you've murdered the one who could not oppose you because he, he had no will. You, you're stronger, he's weaker. But it says, who does not oppose you? So what in the world is he saying? I think this is what James is saying. The reason that you're consumed with the love of money, the reason that you value material possessions over people, the reason that you 
exploit people if you do. The reason that you're worried about your possessions and, and how you're going to gain income. The reason that you're, you're mixed up in all those things is because you have forgotten the one who is condemned and murdered in your place but did so willingly, who did not oppose you, who did not resist you, but gave his life up for you. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. See, if we find ourselves acting out of an impoverished spirit, if we find ourselves not being generous, being worried about our finances, lacking a love for people in the way that we use our stuff for them, then we need to remember that he who was rich in generosity became poor for you so that in him you can be generous. He who was rich in love became poor so that you could be full of love. So here's the question. Do you need generosity? Do you need love? Do you, do you need to be filled with, with just a lack of, of, of worry? Do you need to be filled with a a radical sense of of going out and just using the things that you have for good? The good news is you have it in Him. Because God exchanged all of your ungenerosity, all of your lack of love, all of your sin was put on Jesus at the cross so that at the cross all of the things that made Jesus so righteous were imputed and put onto you so that in Him you become what He is by His Spirit. You want to be loving tomorrow? You have His Spirit who raised Him from the dead. You've got it. You want to be generous, but you're worried about your finances? Remember what He did for you, and you'll be generous. Remember the grace that He poured out on you. And then when you remember it, remember what He's given you. Remember what He's put into your hands, and remember what it is that you should be doing with those things. If you have room in your house for people, ask yourself, who is the person that I'm to use this room for? If you have a car but no driver, ask yourself, who is the driver that needs this car? If you have $1,000 and no place to use it, ask who might be the person who desperately needs this to live tomorrow. We're rich, family. We have abundant resources The question is, are we remembering? And are we using the things that God has given us? I think we have the opportunity to be known for our generosity. So known, in fact, that people come from miles around to experience it. And the reason that I know it is because I've seen it. I've seen it in you. It's beginning to happen. We're not all the way there yet, but by God's grace, we're on the way, family, right? So I hope you don't just feel condemned by this, but I hope you feel like recharged and invigorated to to follow Jesus into the unknown places. We need his spirit to do that. So let's pray and ask that he would come and provide what we need. Father, thank you that you who are rich in everything became poor so that we might be rich. Help us to remember that when we want to hoard because of fear, 
or because of pride or because of lust. Help us to remember that you sacrificed everything for us so that we could release the things that you put in our hand. Don't let us be the kind of people where where you have to pry it out of our hands after we're dead. <laughs> let us be the kind of people that release it generously today. We need your spirit to do that, though. So we come to you and we just ask for your forgiveness over the ways that we haven't done this. Give us grace, God, in our time of need. And empower us, Lord, for something different today and something different tomorrow. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.